Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. You probably said this or maybe heard the saying, um, the Lord works in mysterious ways. You ever heard that before? Okay. Did you know that that actually comes from an old, old hymn that was written in 1774 by a guy named William Cowper? Um, the line actually says, God works in mysterious ways his mysteries to perform or his wonders to perform. And he didn't just kind of pull that idea out of thin air. That is actually the theme that we find throughout the Bible, that God is constantly at working. And it's part of this series that we are in, uh, going all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, how God is working and unfolding his redemptive plan in this world. And we are in chapter 9, um, and we're going to decide to find out this, this, uh, this afternoon, I almost said this morning, and find out this afternoon how God does that in ways that we don't see. Um, Over the last nine weeks, we have been going through this series, just seeing how God has been working out his redemptive purposes. And last week, we were in the book of Judges. And one of the things that we discovered is that that God has this way of being able to break these destructive patterns or cycles that we get ourselves into. And the problem with the nation of Israel is they never learned the lesson, um, that they got stuck in this vicious cycle um, where God gave them a land of peace And in their peace, they became complacent and slipped into sin that ultimately had the consequence of pain. And when they're at the bottom and in the middle of their pain, they cry out to God who sends a deliverer, a rescuer to to champion for them and to get them back into a time of peace in which they become complacent, fall back into sin, which leads to the pain in which they cry out to God, in which God comes and sends a deliverer who sets them up into a time of peace and on and on and on it goes. And they never learned the lesson and they never learned how to break that cycle. And where we are this, um, this afternoon is <clears throat> that we're kind of in that time. In fact, that cycle became not just a, a, a vicious cycle. It became a downward spiral. And that's what we looked at last week, that that's what can happen if you don't interrupt that cycle. It will be a downward spiral that will keep bringing about destruction in your soul and in your life. And we saw that. And we get to the end of the book of Judges. The very last line in the book of Judges says this. There was no king in Israel at that time, and everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar to any kind of a culture or society that you are familiar with at all? Everyone did their own thing. God had established them to live under his provision, under his care, under his authority and his rule. He had called them out to be a people for himself, to live in a unique way and be a unique nation to the whole world. And they chose instead to do their own thing. And it became a disaster. Chaos and confusion and trouble and all kinds of stuff. And so that's what the book of Judges is all about. God trying to redeem back this this culture that just keeps going down, 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 down. And you think God's got so much on his plate dealing with this nation of Israel together as a whole. Um, What else is he doing? And what we're going to see this afternoon is that God is still working. And in the middle of all of that cycle that's going on, there is this story in the book of Ruth, which is the book in your Bible after the book of Judges. And we're going to see how God is working behind the scenes. If you want to follow along, um, if you brought your copy of the story, um, we're on page 121. Um, If you're using your Bible, we're in Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 
In the days when the judges ruled, that's that vicious cycle that they were in, when all that's going on, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And when she was left, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. One was named Orpah, the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard that in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And that's how the story begins. Now, it's a short story. The whole book of Ruth is only four chapters. It's a very short story, but it's, it's an incredible story. It's a fabulous story for a number of reasons. One of them is that there's an inside look at how God works behind the scenes when we don't even see it. And, and, and it's a story of encouragement and hope for people who maybe that this is you, maybe you're here this morning and the circumstances of your life are so overwhelming or you're just kind of wondering what in the world, where is God in the middle of all of this? It's a story of how God works when life doesn't make sense and everything is thrown in confusion. It is also an intimate story. It is a story for those of us who wonder, does God really care about my little insignificant life? When he's got so much else going on in the world and so many other things to attend to, does he really care about my little life? And it's also an encouraging story for those of you who have friends or family members who are far from God right now. And you're wondering, is there ever going to be a way for them to come back? You want for them and wish for them and pray for them to discover this life that you have discovered, this life with God. And you're wondering, is there any way that they're ever going to be reached with this message? And maybe that's you. Maybe you're here this afternoon because you kind of wonder. You're not sure what you believe about God. You're not sure what you believe about faith or about the Bible. But you kind of wonder, does God really care about me? Is God interested in my life despite what I've done or where I've been or how many things I've done? God, is God interested in me? And what we're going to discover together as we go through this story this morning, this afternoon, I'm going to keep trying to remember, afternoon, um, as we go through this story together, we're going to discover God really does care. And he really is intimately involved in every one of our lives. That God is at work whether we see it or not. And one of the ways that he works is God works through relationships. The whole story starts with a family. A family relationship. Begins with a a husband named Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. It's not Elimelech, Elimelech from The Lion Sleeps Tonight, you know. Alimelech, Alimelech, Alimelech. Okay, that's not him, okay? His name means God is my king. He is married to a woman named Naomi. Now, Naomi's name means pleasantness or sweetness. And they have two sons. Their sons are Melon and Kilion. Now, don't name your kids this because Melion's name means sick and Kilion's name means dying, okay? Not names you want for your kids, but for whatever reason, they, uh, they do that. Now, what happens is they're in the nation of Israel. They're Israelites, but... 
the, the land has come into a time of famine. And, and they've kind of gotten to a point where they, they can't produce their own food. Their, their crops are dying. Their, nothing's working out. And they figure maybe, maybe life will be better with a, new, a fresh start somewhere else. So they move east of Israel. They cross the River Jordan. They move into a land called Moab. And while they are in Moab, Elimelech dies. Naomi and her two sons continue to live there. In fact, for 10 years they lived there, we're told. And their two sons marry Moabite women because there's no Israeli women around, so they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. <clears throat> and then both of them die. And now it's just Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. And then we finally decide, you know, <laughs> there's nothing for me here. <laughs> there's no future for me here. I'm in a strange land. I don't know anybody. I've been here 10 years. I really haven't made any friends. I really don't get their customs. I can barely speak the language. You know what? I'm just, I'm moving back home to what's familiar with me. And what happens is both of her daughters-in-law say, we will go with you. We'll go with you. Now, what that tells me is that there was something in that family dynamic There was a level of love expressed between Naomi and her daughters-in-law, so much so that they would be willing to relocate to a foreign land that would be foreign to them because they loved her so much. Now, I don't know if you get that, but that is not the typical mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship, okay? That doesn't happen very often. I mean, I love my mom and I love my wife, but I cannot possibly see them living together under the same roof. It just doesn't work that way. But there was something in that family dynamic. There was a level of relationship building and love expressed to the point where both of the daughters-in-law, both of them, want to move back with Naomi to Bethlehem. In fact, she actually has to argue them, persuade them to stay. She, she said, listen, listen, I don't want to be a burden to you. There's no future for me here, but there's no future for you there. You guys stay back here. This is what she says. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. I don't want to be a burden to you. I love you. In fact, she says it with tears, it says. Both of them, they were, they were all in tears. I don't want to be a burden to you. You still have a life here. You can, you can, you can remarry. You can find a husband. You know, life will be so much better for you. Because that's what love does. <clears throat> if you want a biblical definition of love, it's not about infatuation. It's not about all the mushy feelings. Love, love at the bottom line, is willing and wanting and working for the best of someone else. It is the ultimate of selflessness, and that's Naomi. As much as she loves these two girls, she says, you stay here. Yeah, it would be better for me if you came with me, but it is better for you if you stay here. And she actually has to have this argument, this persuasive argument to get them to stay. And finally, finally, Orpah relents, and Orpah decides she will move back and go back to Moab, and we never hear from her again. Many years later, she goes on to be a very famous talk show host and develops her own TV network and her home publishing house and book club, and she becomes very, very famous, but we don't hear any more about her in the Bible. Ruth, however, Ruth will not be convinced. In fact, Ruth gets to the point. She says this very touching line. Listen to what she says. Listen, I'm not going to leave. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. 
Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. That's an incredibly powerful statement. Sounds an awful lot like wedding vows, doesn't it? In fact, actually, some of you who are older may know there was actually a song put to those words that was sung at many weddings as I was growing up. Wherever you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. In fact, I have a, have a number of weddings lined up um, this summer. I was kind of actually thinking as I was reading through this and looking at it, you know, but that, that would be kind of a cool thing to add to the marriage ceremony. After the husband and wife give their vows, now turn to your in-laws and repeat after me. <laughs> Actually, in, the, in first service this morning, um, there was one of the families was here, the, the future in-laws, and their, their kids are getting married. Their son is getting married. Goes, we think you should put that in the ceremony. We want to see that in the ceremony. I don't know if I'm going to talk them into it. But that's the level of, of commitment. And see, when love is expressed that way, that level of dedication that Naomi had, that, that's what she got in return. God works through our relationships. And by the way, our faith is best expressed through relationships and through love. Sometimes we spend so much time trying to come up with the perfect argument or trying to come up with the the logic and and make all the explanations and answer all the questions. And the truth of the matter is, look at what she says. Not only will your people be my people, your God will be my God. She saw something in Naomi and in that family dynamic that said, I want to be a part of not just that family. I want to be a part of that faith. Our faith is best communicated when it is communicated with love. In fact, I haven't done this in a long, long time, but used to do it every once in a while. How many here would say, I came to faith in Christ because of a family member or a friend who lived out that life for me. That's how I came to faith, because of the influence or love of somebody else. How many would say that's how you came to faith? Yeah, look around you. How many would say, I came to faith because of a TV preacher? (laughs) That's why we don't have a TV ministry. No, because it's a relationship. It's all about a relationship. And God works through relationships. What if... What if, let me just pose this question for you. What if God has you in the exact neighborhood, in the exact position at work, in the exact classroom that he has you right now for the sake of the people around you who need to know his love and his grace? What if? See, one of the ways that God's work, God works is he works through relationships. Another way that he works is he works through our experiences too. The first five sentences of this story, talk about some pretty dire experiences. There's a famine that results in a move to a foreign country with foreign customs and foreign gods and foreign women. (laughs) And then a husband dies, and then a son dies, and then the other son dies, and and, and now there's nothing left. It It is a story that is filled with experiences of loss, of disappointment, discouragement. That's the experiences. Loss of income, loss of support, loss of a future. And on top of that, it's a dangerous time to be a woman, a single woman in this culture. I mean, 
Everything about it screams, God has abandoned me. That's, in fact, how Naomi feels. She goes back to Bethlehem. She finally decides there's nothing left. Ruth accompanies her. The both of them, they move back to Bethlehem. They get back to Bethlehem. And, of course, Bethlehem is a small town, so everybody knows everybody else's business. And all the talk starts. Read it for yourself. Isn't this Naomi? Wasn't that? Didn't they just leave? Like, like 10 years ago, they were going to go make it big in the city. Wow, what happened to her? Wow, she aged. <laughs> And, and who's this, who this gal she's got tagging along with her? And they're all talking about, and they can't understand, they can't, they, they're not even sure it's actually her. She's, so much has come upon her. And they say, isn't this Naomi? And Naomi says this, listen, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. See, Naomi's name, remember, meant sweetness. Mara means bitter. Don't call me sweetness. God has made my life bitter. Everything about her experience, everything about her circumstances right now says God has abandoned me. In fact, worse than that, God is against me. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you are going through some experiences or some circumstances in your life that you're wondering, where is God in the middle of all this? How can God possibly be at work in these experiences? How can there be anything redemptive going on here? God has abandoned me. God has turned against me. And the truth is that God is working behind the scenes see that's what you find through this whole story god is at work even when she can't see it even when nobody else can see it god is at work this this story there are no miracles in this whole story there are no burning bushes there are no series of plagues there are there are no uh, no red sea partings there's no pillar of fire to lead or cloud to lead there's no there's no mountaintop experiences there's none of that going on in fact the only indication that we have at all in this story where god is at work is that it, that naomi hears that god has lifted the famine and provided food again back in israel and that's why she's moving back that's the only mention really in the whole story where god is doing something everything else is a series of coincidences And as you read the story, what happens is you find out that they return back right at harvest time. Now, this is really, really important because they've got no income. They've got no land. They've got no thing on their own. But there was a law. See, part of the law that God gave through Moses to the nation of Israel was for all of you landowners, for all of you farmers, all of you ranchers, here's the deal. You don't reap every single thing that is grown on your field. In fact, you go through with the harvest, you go through at one time, but you don't go back and do a second harvest. And in fact, you don't harvest all the way up to the property line. You leave that behind. You leave that behind. God was making a provision for the poor and the destitute and the widows and the orphans so they could come behind and did what was called gleaning. That after the harvest was completely done, after they'd gone all the way through the field, anything that was left behind was left behind for those who were poor who had no land of their own so that they could have a harvest and they could be food. And part of it was God was making the people understand from the very beginning, this is not your land, okay? This is not your stuff. This is not for you to get all that you want out of it. This is my land. I gave it to you. You are stewards of it. And this is how you manage my land. You get to reap. You get to harvest. You get all that. That's cool. But you don't go back a second time. You leave some behind. 
because I'm taking care of the widows and the orphans and the poor and the destitute. So Ruth and Naomi moved back to Bethlehem right at the harvest time. They've got no land of their own. They've got no provision. They've got nothing for themselves. But it's harvest time. It just happens to be harvest time. But listen to this. It says, Ruth went out. She went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it happened, as it turned out. By the way, that is Bible for God's doing something here. As it turned out, God is working behind the scenes. As it turned out, they happened to return right at the barley harvest. And as it turned out, they returned to a land. No other nation had this law about gleaning. But as it turned out, they returned to a land where that was the law. And as it turned out, she just happened to glean from a field of a very kind and compassionate man. And as it turned out, that man happened to be from the same tribe and family as the dead husband. It just so happened. Because God's at work. Behind the scenes. And, and when Ruth goes back and tells Naomi about this man named Boaz who helped her out. Naomi says, that man, that man's a close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. And we'll get to that in a minute. But what's happening here is God is working behind the scenes in ways they cannot understand. It looks like God has turned against them. It looks like God has just abandoned them and is just destroying them. But God is working behind the scenes through every bit of this story. And it is as if they are on the backside of a tapestry that is being woven. And all they can see are the loose threads and the knots and all of the splotches of color. But there is no real picture here. They can't make out what's going on here. It just looks like a mess. But God is about to turn that tapestry around. And they're going to be able to see that he has been weaving something very, very beautiful. A picture they couldn't see any other way. Because that's how God works. He works in relationships. He works through our experiences. So here's my other question for you this morning. What if, what if God has you right in the middle of the circumstances you are experiencing right now, as hard as it might be for you to see it, because he's doing a work in your life? That he's doing something not only in you, but he's going to be doing something through you for the people around you as well. Because that's how God works. He's working through every bit of these circumstances. And the last thing is he works through acts of compassion. Because one of these just so happens is that they just so happen to be in this field of Boaz. Boaz is the third main character in this story. And he is a man of character and a man of compassion. Remember what I said earlier. This is in the time of the judges where everybody's doing their own thing. Whatever seems right in their own eyes. Whatever works out for number one. That's what everybody else is doing. They are farming right up to the edge. They are going through with the second reaping of the harvest. They're doing everything they can to make it in this world. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. But Boaz... Boaz is a man who has decided to swim upstream, to stand against the tide. He is a man who has decided to do things God's way. God is going to use his acts of compassion to do some incredible things here. By the way, anybody know who Boaz's mother was? 
Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, who had hidden the spies from Israel that had come into the land. She and her family, her family, Rahab, her son, Boaz, and the rest of the family were the only ones that were saved and rescued out of that conquest of Jericho. And it's Boaz who knows what it's like to be a foreigner in a strange land, who knows what it's like to experience the grace of God and to live in a land where people honor God. He knows how to treat this foreign woman that's come to glean. And he finds out about her and he pulls her aside and he says to her this, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. See, he's not just intent on fulfilling the letter of the law. He has bought into the spirit of the law. He's not just leaving what he knows he has to leave. He is above and beyond that. He is generous and he is compassionate. And he says, don't go to any other fields. You're safe here. And I've told my men, don't you lay a hand on her. You touch her, you answer to me. And by the way, there's a shady place over there and there's some water jugs. So when you get thirsty and you get tired, go and take a break and get something to drink. And then, actually, we'll find out later, he also went to his workers and he said to them, now listen, when you go through and Ruth is in the field kind of behind you, drop a little bit out of your basket. Leave a little bit extra on the field for her to glean. And that act of compassion made all the difference because what it did was it brought these two people together. Because a little bit later in the story, when, when Ruth comes back and tells um, Naomi about this, this guy and, and how he treated her and how he gave her actually more than... Ruth said, uh, Naomi said, listen, listen. I'm getting a little old here and we got to find you a husband. <laughs> okay? So here's what we're going to do. This Boaz guy, he is one of our guardian redeemers. He's the guy you want to know. So you go take a nice bath. You get all cleaned up. Get all dolled up. Put on your best dress. little little perfume, and then you go down to the threshing floor because the harvest is almost over, and they're going to be down there working late into the night. And so after they're done working and they've had a little bit to eat and a little bit to drink, you know, you just go and make your intentions known to Boaz. And as you read the story, people have put all kinds of sexual connotations into that. That's not what's going on. All it is is it is a way in which a woman could make known to a man, I'm available, and I'm interested. And so she does. And Boaz is interested. Very interested. And he is one of these guardian redeemers, or what you might call, some of your translations might say kinsman redeemer. It was also part of the law in Israel that God had set up. So that if someone, for some misfortune, were unable to make it in this world, maybe had to sell off their property, that there was always a guardian, there was, there was a series of these guardian redeemers, these kinsmen redeemers, who could step to the aid of someone, a family member who had lost the property. And he could step in and he could buy the property back and reestablish that family for them. Or sometimes, sometimes they would get to the point where they not only sell off their, their land, they would have to actually sell themselves into slavery just to have meat to put on the table food to put on the table. 
And so a guardian redeemer could go in and pay the ransom, pay the price for that person and buy them back, buy back their life, buy back their property. And in some circumstances, if a husband had died and there was no one to carry on the family line, that guardian redeemer could step in and marry that widow and have a son and provide a line and carry on the line for that family. Now, they did that at great risk. But it was an extreme act of love and compassion. And Boaz just happens to be one of these guardian redeemers for Elimelech's clan. Trouble is, there's another one who's actually first in line. He gets first dibs. He gets gets first right of refusal. And so he goes the next morning. He calls this other guy. They meet at the city gate because that's where business is taken care of out there. And they meet together, and he says to him, okay, listen, there is this piece of property that's come available. It's a Limelex property. You know, he moved away, yeah, 10 years ago. Turns out he's died. The property is there. It's available for redemption. And since you're the first in line, I'm giving you first shot at it. Do you want the property? And the guy says, I'll take it. I'll buy it. He says, well, not so fast. You need to know there's a few strings attached. First of all, it comes with a widow. And you're going to have to marry her. And, and also on the property, there's this in-law apartment, and, and the mother-in-law there, she has a lifetime lease on it, and by the way, she goes by the name Bitter. <laughs> At which point, the other guy says, I think I'll pass on that. Because <laughs> part of the deal is, um, when, when there was a, a, a marriage involved and all of that, now it confused the estate, because there was no prenuptial agreements. It just kind of mixed everything together. Now there's heirs, and there's my heirs, and her heirs, and ours heirs. I mean, it's just like, you know, that's just too much of a headache. And that mother-in-law thing, forget it. I'm done. It's yours. And Boaz then goes, and he becomes the redeemer. He buys the property at great expense to himself. He marries Ruth. He takes in Naomi. And he literally buys back their lives. That's what it meant to redeem. He did it at great personal expense. And what did he get out of it? All that we know is his life before this had been ruthless. Oh, come on. That was good. The other services liked it. They weren't awake. (laughs) Thank you. Great expense to himself. But he redeems her life. And they get married. And they have a son who is named Obed. And a little bit later, towards the end of the story, towards the end of the story, there's a picture of Naomi. And she's got her grandson, the grandson she never thought she'd have. The one who would carry on this line that she thought was come to an end. And she's showing off the baby to all of her friends. And the ladies say to her, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. Your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Now what they are saying by that, if you see the name, the number seven come up in scripture, it is always associated with perfection or with fulfillment. And what they're saying is God has restored your life better than if you had the best life you could possibly have imagined. 
better than having seven sons. God has provided this for you. He has provided this kinsman redeemer. And once you go on, in the very end, the very end of the book of Ruth, it ends with a genealogy. Now, that's not very, that's not common at all. In fact, most stories begin with the genealogy. They look back at the ancestry and the, and the heritage of, that's coming up. To, that's what you find in the beginning of the Gospels. This story ends with a genealogy because it's pointing forward. Because Boaz and Ruth have a son they name Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David who becomes king of Israel. And then if you come to the book of Matthew, there's another genealogy that finishes it up. Anybody want to guess another redeemer who came from a small town named Bethlehem in Judea? About 1,100 years later, a baby is born in Bethlehem whose name is Jesus. And he becomes the ultimate redeemer. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? This whole story, God's big story is going on up here. And we down here, we don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. It looks like a bunch of loose threads and knots and everything else. But God is doing his redemptive work. It all keeps pointing to what God's doing. And this Jesus comes and lives in relationship with a group of people. And he experiences everything in life that you experience to the nth degree. And then in the ultimate act of compassion and sacrificial love, he goes to the cross. He pays the ultimate price to buy back my life, to buy back your life. He came to redeem, to redeem you. Do you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.